Hi, I'm Ravi Agarwal. This is Global Reboot. Welcome to the show. There are currently two wars underway in the world. The one in Ukraine and now Israel's war on Hamas. Serious analysts worry about the possibility of a third, that China may at some stage invade Taiwan, and that the United States may then get involved and spark a broader US-China conflict. If that happened, it would really be the equivalent of World War III. Now, there are many scholars who also think China is just not going to attack Taiwan for a range of reasons. I won't get into that here. But whatever you believe about China's intentions, one important element underpinning all of this is the US-China relationship. These are the world's two biggest economies, and this is the world's most important relationship. It's become increasingly tense over the last few years with sharper rhetoric, more protectionism, and more fears about tempers flaring in a dangerous way. Well, my next guest says the United States needs to cool things down. Andy Kim is a congressman from New Jersey who has served in the Pentagon, the State Department, and the National Security Council. He's also on a powerful bipartisan House committee, the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. While he might not agree with his Republican counterparts on that committee, Kim is making the case for a new approach to China, and perhaps even to U.S. foreign policy at large. Global Reboot is a partnership between foreign policy and the Doha Forum. My conversation with Kim was recorded in October on FP Live, my other podcast. This was right before the House finally elected a speaker. But as you'll see, Kim's point still stands, and we wanted to bring it to you as is. Let's dive right in. Congressman Kim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Congressman, you are on the Select China Committee. What worries you about America's current approach to China? I think there's a lot of attention, of course, on U.S.-China relations and where it's going, and rightfully so. You know, there's a lot out there to be worried about. There are a lot of actions that are being taken uh, by the CCP, a lot of actions of the, of the centralization of power and consolidation of power by President Xi that worries me. Certainly, I think uh, after what we saw happen in Hong Kong, um, in terms of, again, just the, the repression there, uh, it worries me tremendously. I think for me, when it comes to how the United States is approaching U.S.-China relations, I am glad that there is increased attention and focus, but I, I don't feel like it's being done in sort of the broader comprehensive way that I would like it to be done. I, I think there's a lot of attention on our military security elements, and look, that's important. Deterrence is critical. And certainly when we're talking about how to maintain the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, you know, that's going to play a central role. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. I get it. We're focused on that. But when you look at these questions of, well, what kind of strategic competition is this? What form does it take? And how is the United States faring in this? How do we match up? You know, I feel like we're not looking at some of those broader questions. And if we do so, I think we would come to see that a lot of what we focus on isn't just about what China is doing and how we slow them down or how we try to deter but also about how we strengthen ourselves, how we build stronger coalitions, how we invest in our own self. You know, if you think about it as, let, let's say it's a race, you know, yes, you can spend 
important time thinking about how to slow your competitor down in a race, but you also have to invest in your own agility and your own strength. And that's where I feel like there has not been the kind of adequate level of attention. And there are some sticking point issues that prevent this from really being brought up in the way that I would like to see it brought up in different forms in Capitol Hill and throughout the government. So I'm going to push you on that just a little bit. So in essence, you're saying that America's problem in the way in which it's dealing with China is that it is focused more on slowing China down, constraining China, and less on boosting itself. If that is the case, what aspect of not boosting itself is the White House currently unable uh, to give enough attention to? Both are necessary. We should be thinking about deterrence. We should be thinking about concerns of what China is doing. That's fine. But look, I will say I do feel like the Biden administration actually does understand this in some ways better than I feel like some of the conversations on Capitol Hill have been. You know, the Biden administration has been engaged in efforts um, about building coalitions, for instance which I think is so critical to the need of this. And, you know, especially building these coalitions across the Indo-Pacific. And I think when you think about that as a major priority and pillar to a strategy, you see why it's important not just to talk about the military and security angle. You know, when I was out in Malaysia, they were happy to talk to me about security, but they overwhelmingly wanted to talk to me about economic issues and trade and, and direct investment and, and other ways in which we can help. There's a hunger for a broader set of conversations and tools. And when we come to them, they even came to me and told me, like, all you want to do is talk about military deterrence and where to place weaponry and et cetera. Um, but you have to listen to what we need and what we want to talk about. I hear that in, in Singapore. I hear that in Korea, Japan, elsewhere that we have to have a broader horizon because you know the way that I've heard from them is like they don't want to be seen or talked about in a way where it just seems like they are just a square on a chessboard between great power competition. They want to know that we have interest in them in and of themselves, not just in terms of their usefulness to us on a broader question and strategy about China. And that sense of respect that is necessary is important. And, and we have to choose our words and our phrases carefully to send the right signals to them that we understand the challenging situation that they're in. Congressman, it strikes me, I mean, obviously, we're talking about rebooting US-China policy, but it also strikes me that you're describing a wider reboot of how America engages with the world, period. Yeah, it look, describes foreign policy. Yeah, that's right. Because what I think about here is how I believe we're in this new era of global politics. You know, we're firmly no longer in the post 9-11. We're in this new era. We don't fully know what this new era will bring, but we know that, you know, this is just, you know, we've seen these paradigm shifts in the past, the end of the Cold War, the 9-11 uh, terrorist attack. We rightfully believe that a big part of this new era is going to involve some semblance of great power competition, but, you know, it's still taking shape. You know, as I've studied this over the course of my career, a lot of it is this question of what will this era look like when things start to harden? The beginning of these new eras are often very fluid. You know, we see this with decolonization and the fluidity and the wars that broke out. We saw it after the end of the Cold War and the, and the emergence of a lot of security challenges and threats in Europe and elsewhere. 
we see that right now. Now the question is, where does it start to harden? And the sense is like, how do we have it harden in a way that is most beneficial to the United States? So you're right. I, I don't necessarily think about it as just U.S. versus China. In fact, I think that we are weaker if we think about it in that capacity because we are not then leveraging some of our strongest value adds and our strongest competitive advantages, I guess I would say. Like we can build coalitions internationally and globally much better than China can. We need a broader strategy, not just a China strategy, but a Indo-Pacific strategy and a broader strategy of what American global leadership and coalition building looks like in this era. So I have to say you are in a real minority when it comes to what you're describing about a normative U.S. foreign policy. And you're on the Select China Committee, where I would argue that most of your fellow committee members feel the opposite of what you're describing right now. Um, many of them see China as a mortal threat. Many of them speak in escalatory rhetoric about China. And what you're describing is, is a seemingly, to me, a lonely posture. How do you then advance uh, the idea that you're describing right now, given that it is unpopular and that many of your colleagues disagree with you? Yeah, well, look, I'd like to push back a little bit here because what I would say is I've had a lot of conversations with colleagues of mine that share that sense. And I think what you're seeing right now are a lot of members of Congress that are gaining more and more understanding of the broader challenges that we face. The problem that we face, though, is on Capitol Hill, everything is so reactionary. As I told you, like it feels like we're just going like one day at a time, one tweet at a time, and we're constantly reacting. And when you're in a completely reactionary mode, of course, the things that you're going to react to are the spy balloon or this conflict or this tension. But as this issue gets more and more prominence on Capitol Hill, I do find that my conversations with colleagues on both sides of the aisle are able to get deeper and more nuanced. And th this understanding of, of where do we think this is going? Like what does success for us look like? Is it just perpetual tension with like a sword of Damocles hanging over our head for the rest of our lives and my kids' generation? Or is there some semblance of, of where we can go, where we feel some sense of stability once again? And so I, I don't know the I, answer to I, that, but that's well, the conversation I, I, that needs to happen. I was going to push you on exactly that because the the question of where do we see this going, what is the end state of U.S.-China competition when you imagine policymaking in the current moment? What do you think is an ideal end state yeah. for this administration to consider? My mom always had this line, you know, you focus on the things you can control, you know, don't lose sleep on the things you can't. So, you know, that's why I think a lot about what it is that we can control and what we can drive. And, you know, for instance, you're right, you know, I'm on this select committee. Now, look, the original title of the select committee was on the strategic competition between the United States and the CCP. You know, that has, title has shifted over time. But when you focus on that strategic competition, which is, you know, what, what I signed up for, you know, you, again, you can think about what is it that the United States can do to strengthen itself. For instance, one of the things I think we've done in my time in Congress that has best positioned ourselves vis-a-vis -vis China is the Chips and Science Act. You know, something that has given the United States a capacity to recognize that we have to take major steps to be able to continue to secure our innovative capabilities going forward, 
our capacity to drive and our ability to not be as reliant upon other countries for critical types of products and materials to be able to function. Now, if you look at the select committee, there's a very different understanding of how important is that to our strategic competition. Every single Democratic member of the select committee voted for the Chips and Science Act. Every single member of the Republican side of the select committee voted against the Chips and Science Act. So that's what I am trying to bring to the forefront is, yes, we can talk about military deterrence and support for Taiwan and elsewhere, but what is the value add of creating a select committee? What is it that that committee can do that no other committee currently has a capacity or capabilities of doing? Like, is there a Chips and Science 2.0 that we can do? Is there a way that we can try to figure out what were the objections that these Republicans on the select committee had to Chips and Science? How can we address that and try to move forward in a more bipartisan way? even though the Chips and Science Act was quite bipartisan, investing in our own workforce, our own talent. I think everyone recognizes that our talent pool in America is our global strength. That includes investing in our own education, investing in fixing a broken immigration system that is preventing America from continuing to be the magnet of global talent, which again, has allowed us to produce some of the most innovative companies in the world. That is part of strategic competition. So, you know, so you know, if we bring that strategic competition phrase back into the title of the select committee and make it not just about what is the CCP doing, but also thinking about what we can do, I think that the committee could reach another level of productivity. And I've worked with the chairman for years, even before we've come into Congress. We've known each other for well over a decade. I respect him. Um, but I, I just want to just open up that kind of conversation and, and do things that I feel like we can't do in the Armed Services Committee or the Foreign Affairs Committee, which I'm also on. Let me ask you this. I mean, you mentioned the chairman of the Select China Committee, uh, that is Mike Gallagher. Um, he has never visited China. Many members of Congress, many members on the Select Committee have never visited China. Do you think that hurts uh, an understanding or an appreciation for what America is dealing with when it thinks about strategic competition? Well, look, uh, you know, as, as we've talked about, you know, I've worked in diplomacy before. Um, so I have a fundamental belief that there needs to be, you know, baseline levels of engagement, especially between the two most powerful nations in the world, between nuclear powers, that there needs to be something there more than just military to military connections, though I would be very happy if we can reestablish that as soon as possible. But just that understanding of that sense of engagement, I think it would be beneficial. I'm guessing you have made the case for more engagement, for more congressional delegations to China. When you make that case, what kind of a response do you usually get? Uh, well, look, I mean, I think some members uh, agree that there's opportunity for us to, to have more engagement. Um, and that kind of engagement in and of itself is valuable. Not every meeting between countries needs to be seen as if it's a summit that needs to have like a long list of deliverables. Like you cannot put that kind of pressure on just everyday diplomacy. You know, so again, we just need to get to a place where we have that kind of established baseline that we can think about where to go. And look, you want that kind of engagement in particular when some type of crisis emerges. 
You know, you would, whenever a crisis happens, you always wish you had better relations and connections to try to do your best to mitigate or potentially offset escalation that could be uh, exceedingly damaging if that's not the right direction to go. But look, I mean, there are other members, um, and you know, I mean, I'm sure you've been tracking that that uh, that don't think that that kind of engagement is important or helpful. Um, that have been critical of uh, the Biden administration's efforts to engage, um, and have gone as far as to try to criticize that as some type of form of appeasement or something of that nature. I think that that's very dangerous and damaging. It takes and removes a tool from our toolbox. And I always say foreign policy already is a small toolbox. There are are not that many tools at our disposal. So why take something off the table? What harm is that doing? And the other thing I'll say is, that as, I, as you heard me say earlier, I think coalition building is so fundamental to U.S. success going forward. It's you know as important as investing in ourselves. We cannot build coalitions with especially the partners in the Indo-Pacific that we want to. If we are not showing that we are giving some effort into diplomacy with China, I hear it in Singapore and all over the place. People are saying like, you cannot be the instigators of the tensions. You cannot be seen as the one that is being provocative and provoking this. Otherwise, it limits our ability to be able to rally our country to work with you. You need to show that you are a responsible global power but at least to just have that talk and that communication channel open, that goes a long way to show our coalition partners that we're listening to them and that their perspectives are important to us. So we've been discussing people-to-people uh, -people diplomacy. We've been talking uh, congressional delegations. We've been talking about the Chips and Science Act. We've talked about reforming immigration these are all uh, aspects uh, of the U.S.-China relationship, but more broadly, what are the things that you would try to reboot as you try to reimagine and rethink a new American approach towards China? I'm glad you took that step back because one thing I wanted to say that, again, it still is part of what America needs to do in and of itself, but I'm speaking to you right now from the United States Capitol where we do not have a Speaker of the House that we are at a place right now where we have no capacity to vote on any legislation right now. And we have the problems with the debt ceiling crisis and others. And when the debt ceiling crisis happened, I got this very fascinating phone call from a foreign leader that, um, that just sticks in my mind where he asked me, he's like, Andy, like, are you, is your country really going to default on its debt? And I, I said, look, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to prevent that from happening, but I'm not sure. And that person just kind of like laughed in an exasperated way, like, uh, like kind of way on the phone. And what they said to me was just stuck in my mind. They said that like the fundamental question that they asked themselves, you know, at their government table um, and they talked to other partner nations about is, is America a reliable partner? And they say that and ask that knowing full well what their answer is right now, which is the answer is no, that we are not as reliable as we could be. They call it American whiplash. You know, you join the Paris Climate Agreement, you leave the Paris Climate Agreement, you join the Paris Climate Agreement. Like, what is the value of the American handshake right now? And so a huge part of it is investing in ourselves, dealing with the workforce, the innovation, these other actions, investing in our military, making sure we have the strength that we need for deterrence, that we're investing in our partners. 
But a critical part of this is healing this broken democracy that we have. You know, like when I when we do these kind of exercises, thinking about like, well, what could potentially unfold in the Taiwan Strait if something were to happen? We talk about, oh, well, we have this capability and Taiwan has this capability and the CCP has this capability. But with the elephant in the room is always this question of like, yes, but if something were to happen, can America make a decision? Is American politics in a place where in a crisis situation that we can come together and make What's a decision? What's the answer to that? Can it? Well, look, I mean, I think you see some of that right now in terms of the face of this war in Ukraine and this war in the in the Middle East with Israel. Um, what signal is that sending if we, we can't agree and pass support to our partners in Ukraine and we don't have the ability to even pass a basic resolution condemning terrorist attacks uh, against Israel. That's what I worry about. So like we need to fix this and realize that this partisan divide that we have, this isn't just about you know domestic politics and which party has greater control and you know who's gonna have the upper hand in negotiations for the government shutdown, uh, hopefully averting the government shutdown, that this is about national security. And this is about American global leadership. And right now, the rest of the world is looking at us in shock of just how dysfunctional it is. And then they're moving on. And what I hear from people is just like, we don't have time for America to get its act together. So you come find us when you figure it out. But right now, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And that is really sad that we've become, in some ways, irrelevant in some of those conversations internationally because... We just can't get our act together to even get to that table in the way that we need to. I think the Biden administration has correctly prioritized, you know, reengaging with multilateral institutions and coalition partners and reaffirming the importance of alliances. So I give them great credit, but they cannot always control what is happening in the United States Congress or how the dialogue is happening more broadly. So I ask my colleagues that are concerned about China on both sides of the aisle to recognize that. We are doing harm to our ability to compete against China by just having this level of toxicity and polarization in our politics. So I think that's easy to agree with here. Um, but Congressman, um, let me play hardliner for a minute and put to you a criticism of the approach that you're proposing here. So if part of your proposal is to engage more with China, one counter to that is that there is no evidence that Beijing wants to reciprocate. What would you say to that? I think that we've seen some semblance of willingness on their end. I, you know, I hope to see that continue on. But, you know, I guess there's this question of like, you know, what do they gain out of this? You know, we have had several administration officials uh, go over to China. We need to see some reciprocity. We need to see that there are some uh, willingness to to engage and commit um, to that semblance on both sides, but that doesn't mean that the project is not worth doing. You know, I, I always think about this quote by Mitchell during the the peace negotiations that he was doing, where he said, you know, there were something like seven hundred bad days and one good day. You know, like the persistence in diplomacy is important. You know, this is not something where on any given day, you can say, oh, this we're done. This is not worthwhile. There's value in some persistence and you know, just being there and, and keeping that door open for some conversation. 
Uh, I agree, you know, it's not a situation where we want to be, you know, capitulating or giving too much uh, in these discussions. So that's a place where we can have very reasonable conversations amongst our colleagues about where that threshold and that line is. Um, but I do hope that we can find opportunities, even when we had the Cuban Missile Crisis facing down a, a nuclear conflict. Yes, military deterrence played a role, but diplomacy also played a role in creating a channel in which dialogue and communication could happen, in which we could try to find off-ramps to be able to avert that. And now more than ever, when we see what's happening in Ukraine, that kind of effort is important to have available. It's not always something that is ripe for every moment. I agree with that. And, you know, I've done a lot of work in the Middle East and North Korea, South Korea. There's not always an open door for diplomacy to make progress, but that doesn't mean you take it off the table. Congressman Andy Kim, I thank you for your time today. Great. Thanks for having me. And that was Andy Kim, a Democratic member of Congress and also a member of the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. Global Reboot is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. Next week, Ava Meidel. She is a member of the European Parliament who is at the forefront of creating guardrails for artificial intelligence. How do we regulate AI? She has the beginnings of the answers. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time.